following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hello. Um, turn with me again to the Gospel of Luke. Um, today we're... I've been singing. Uh, Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and that's page 857 in the Pew Bibles. Um, And this may uh, feel a little bit like Christmas, uh, even though we're right on the doorstep of Easter, um, which is fun. So uh, that is very true. You cannot have Easter without Christmas, so. Timing is right, right here. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes, soften our hearts, unstop our ears, and we could hear your spirit speak. We could see your hand at work, and that we would be able to apply the truth of your word to our own lives, our own decisions. May this time bring you glory and joy. We are your children, and we worship you. We love you, Lord, and thank you. We give you this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So every Christmas Eve, we read this text of Luke chapter 2. And Luke 2 continues on with accounts of shepherds and angels and all the parts that make up our manger scenes um, and creches. And we read these things and we think about the birth of Jesus and Mary and Joseph and stables and inns and we sing songs and we dress kids up in angel costumes. And um, it's a wonderful time. And it's all very sentimental, like it's just not Christmas if we don't have the, you know, fill in the blank. It's just not Christmas without singing Silent Night and trying not to burn your hands on candle wax. Right. I mean. That's uh, it's just that's Christmas. That's what we do. But the author of this gospel, Luke, the faithful physician, included details, included the details of our text this morning um, for much greater reasons than just stirring up our emotions and feelings of sentimentality. Do you remember? Um, well, it was months ago now where we were talking about authors' intense statements as we were starting our 
study of the Gospel of Luke. What was the original author's intent in writing uh, in writing this? Uh, and for those of you who have that vague inkling of, I think I remember you might have said something like that once. Um, do you remember what Luke's intent was in writing this gospel? No. <laughs> yeah, to provide an orderly account so that Theophilus would know the accuracy of the things that he had been taught. Right? Luke's intent was to give Theophilus certainty about the things he had been taught about what Jesus began to do and teach. And he, he did he intended to do that by carefully researching Jesus' life and ministry and carefully recording those accounts. So that means, if that was Luke's intent, when we turn to Luke chapter 2, the things that he mentions here in these first seven verses are not by accident. And oh, by the way, this happened and, and this person was this thing. Um, his purpose uh, here is far greater than to stir up our merry and bright feelings about our about the Christmas season. What Luke describes here in these few verses is much more than just sentimentality. The details that he includes have a very uh, a great purpose, a much greater purpose. So let's look at some of these details. In, in uh, verse one, in those days, that's the the days right around the birth of John the Baptist, right? Remember, there, when Luke wrote this, he didn't stop and put a big number two there and move on to something else, right? This is all written as one account. So in those days, uh, after uh, John the Baptist was born and Mary went back to Nazareth, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And they all went to be registered, each to his own town. So why would Luke include these details? Because he's overly dramatic and just wants to set the stage for our, our imaginations? Well, yeah, I, I, it's, this, is, this is all part of setting the historical context, right? Caesar Augustus was a real person, okay? Quirinius, or uh, some... Uh, some translations say Cyrenus, uh, same person. He really was a real person, governor of Syria. They both existed, and it is recorded in secular history, outside of the Bible, right? Those are facts established. Uh, Quirinius, interestingly enough, and I learned this uh, this week when studying this text, Quirinius, I really wish that we would have, that ESV would have, written at Cyrenus, because that's a lot easier to say. Um, he actually served as governor of Syria twice. So when it says the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, he, he did this registration twice because he served as governor twice. The Romans liked to do that, so they make sure that their taxes were accurate, right? So their numbers for their armies were accurate, and their coffers were always full. Right. Um, so this census was taken both times that he served as governor, this one. And then there was another one about 10 years later, which is much more well known than the first one. So everybody says, well, this can't be right because uh, Jesus would have been 10 years old when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Well, he was, but that was the second time. OK, um, 
So these, these are historical facts. And that's important because Luke's account is historical facts. Right? This isn't a fantasy. These historical facts are confirmed by historians outside of the Bible. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus, who was not a Christian in any way, shape, or form, um, he confirms um, Luke's timeline. Josephus, who is a Jewish uh, historian, also not a follower of Christ, confirmed these things, confirmed the record of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, um, and the time, um, and also the existence of a great following that held that Jesus was, in fact, God. Right? And Josephus is old. This was in 1980. I mean, this was even before that. Okay? My kids think history begins in the 80s. Luke includes all these details, not just to, to paint a, a, an engaging picture, right, so that we'd really get into the story. Wow. You know, this is his purpose is to establish historical facts so that we do have a timeline and we do know that we can make we can reference these historical milestones uh, to 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 get this um, to anchor this narrative to the world's historical record. The second reason that Luke includes these details concerns the fulfillment of prophecy. Right? You'll remember uh, back in chapter one, I'm giving you a lot of credit, remembering back in chapter one, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her that she will bear a son. And she responds, how will this be since I am a virgin? Right? I don't have a husband and I that's a necessary piece of the puzzle for sons to be born, right? Um, and Luke says again in verse 5 of chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph were still not yet married, right? In, in, in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph, not married yet, right? Still. Why is that important? Well, it's to fulfill prophecy. It's to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14, that Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah wrote, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Right? So that wasn't the first prophecy about Messiah. The first prophecy about Messiah was in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15, when God speaks to the serpent. And it shows that Messiah uh, would, would be a human, not an angel. Right. So and God said in Genesis 3, Genesis 315, I had two cups of coffee this morning. So forgive me. I'll try to slow down. And God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. You uh, he shall bruise. Your head. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Messiah was to be a human. In order to be a human, you need to be born of a human, right? So Mary uh, is part of the fulfillment of this prophecy. In God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, it shows that Messiah would be a Jew and not a Gentile, since he would be Abraham's offspring. And Luke had already established in his account that Joseph and Mary were Jewish, right? Um, and here again in verse 4, when he records that they were both descended from from David, King David, King of Israel, 
If you're descended from him, that makes you Jewish. Okay. Um, and that itself is a fulfillment of the prophecy from 1 Samuel uh, 7, 1 through 17, which is like a whole chapter. So I'm not going to read that one to you. But Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That phrase is speaking of Messiah. It's from Abraham's seed that all the world, all the earth will be blessed. All families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Jesus. He's the only one able to do that. According to the prophecy of Micah 5, verses 2 through 5, the Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. That's Messiah, that's Jesus. Not to mention that these prophecies, the closest one as far as time goes, was written 600 years before Jesus was born. Genesis, way before that. All of these facts, all of these details recorded by Luke are included to establish their historicity, right? The the fact that they're historical facts, they're tied to recorded history, and also that they are, in fact, fulfillments of prophecy. Luke felt it was important to include those details because God said, this is how Messiah is going to come. And Luke said, yeah, this is how Messiah came, just like God said, right? God had already established that this was how it was going to go. He had told his people that, uh, that, through, that it would go this way through the prophets, right? And he's proving himself to be faithful to his word. That's really important for us to remember. That God is faithful to his word. If he said it, he will do it. He said he would send Messiah. He said he would send Messiah as a human being, not as an angel. But he said that he would send Messiah uh, to be born of a virgin. That, that he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would be of the lineage of Abraham and David. And he did that. Jesus fulfilled those. And this brings me to the third reason that Luke includes all these details. I snuck a three-point sermon in on you. You were distracted by the suit. (laughs) The third reason that Luke includes these details is that in them God displays his attributes. And not the least of these attributes is his providence. J.P. Lang records it this way. God manifests all his attributes in sending his son, his power in making Mary become a mother through the operation of the Holy Spirit, his wisdom 
in the choice of the time, place, and circumstances, his faithfulness in the fulfillment of the word of prophecy, his holiness in hiding the miracle from the eyes of an unbelieving world, and especially his love and grace. But at the same time, we see how different and how infinitely higher are his ways and thoughts than ours. His dealings with chosen ones seem to obscure seem obscure to our finite apprehension when we see that she who was most blessed of all, of all women, finds less rest than any other. God brings his counsel to pass in silence without leaving the threads of the web in mortal hands. Apparently, an arbitrary decree decides where Christ is to be born. Still, when carefully viewed, a bright side is not wanting to the picture. God, as the Almighty, carries out his plan through the free acts of men, and without his knowledge, Augustus is an official agent of the kingdom of God. That last bit, Augustus, Caesar, not a real nice guy, uh, not the worst uh, Roman emperor there was, not a Christ follower, not a believing person, not even Jewish. Augustus Caesar unknowingly became an official agent of the kingdom of God. Uh, this is an introduction, I think, to a concept that seems lost in our vocabulary, and that's divine providence. Joseph and Mary, were it not for divine providence, would most likely have stayed in Nazareth, right? Had the baby gotten married, raised a family, grew old, sat in the rocking chairs on the front porch, and the prophecies would have failed, right? Their firstborn wouldn't be named Jesus. It was James, right? God the Father used Caesar and his seemingly arbitrary decree to register everybody so he could further tax them to move Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem so the prophecy would be fulfilled. That's divine providence. Providence uses what seems to be negative or arbitrary and uses it for positive, for God's purpose. God's purpose is always positive. It doesn't matter how we feel about it. That's where we get into trouble. How could a loving God do something so horrible or allow something so terrible to happen? Well, you don't understand. You don't understand all the things that are happening to get something else to happen that you may never know about. I, I hate that. And love it at the same time. Another stupid decree from the stinking government that forces Joseph to trek some 80 miles with his very pregnant fiance to Bethlehem to find that there's nowhere them for them to stay, forcing them to have to have their baby in a cave with donkeys. Like, can you write a worse? Like, how could it? You know, I'm sure they stubbed their toes on every rock, you know, for 80 miles it rained. I can't even imagine. Like, it must have felt like there was nothing going right here. 
It's divine providence. All of those negatives working out for God's greater purposes. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. History, prophecy, providence, Luke records all these details because this account was real, not a fantasy. God's word is true. Jesus is alive and we can trust in him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work um, in all things. And it seems trite to say that all things work together for good for those who, who love you and are called according to your purpose. And we hear that a lot when things are going wrong. And sometimes it hurts to hear those words. We just don't want to hear it. But it's the truth. That there are so many things working that we don't understand. And even in this account, there are things that Mary and Joseph didn't understand, but you were working things together, not just for their good, but for the good of all mankind. Could it be possible that you are at work for the good of more than just ourselves in the difficulties that we face? Lord, this is when our trust is put to the test, when our faith has to be proved real. Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us and comfort us in those trying uh, trying times. Help us to remember, Lord, that you really are at work in all things. And we can trust you. Even when we don't understand. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church. Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.